Today, how movements to make war more humane and less harmful may, ironically, be causing more war. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today on Good in Theory, we have Samuel Moyne, who is a professor of law and history at Yale and also a host of Digging a Hole, which is a podcast about legal theory. Is that is that right? Correct. Why is it why is it called Digging a Hole? Is there a story? About well, it's there's a children's book that's uh, uh, about uh, these two characters, Sam and Dave, and it just so happens that, uh, that those are the names of the two people who run this podcast at, at Yale Law. So we 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 kind of did a shout out to those children's characters. That's really sweet. I like that. <laughs> um, also, Sam is the author of several books, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And uh, your most recent book, which is called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And that's uh, what I'd like to talk about today. So the book, as I understand it, is about how American efforts to make war more humane uh, and get rid of all the atrocities and bad things which we hate actually has made America more okay with going to war and has kind of enabled this ongoing forever war dynamic that we have going today. Uh, and that's kind of the catchy thesis of the book that humanitarian efforts have actually made war longer and more possible and maybe even worse. Um, and I want to get into that, but let's start by just laying the conceptual groundwork that you're working with. So your book begins by talking about a couple of different approaches to war, pacifism, humanitarianism. Um, can you tell us a bit about those and what the difference is conceptually? Maybe we can start with uh, pacifism. Sure. Thanks for having me, first off. So, you know, different people, yeah, different, you know, proposals to constrain war you know are are go way back i mean you find them in in deuteronomy for example and in the middle ages there's feudalism and you know many other examples i'm interested in modern times and in the 19th century you get these kind of competing agendas up and the first sign of this one in which I'm really interested, kind of humanizing or making uh, it it less full of suffering for combatants and civilians affected by war. But there was also this other agenda um, that has had a a kind of you know spotty record lately, which is not having war. And you know it's kind of amazing that that appeared because for most of history. Uh, there was there was no belief that you could end things like you know poverty, slavery, war. But in the 19th century, all of those became kind of credible possibilities. So I'm interested in how um, the anti-war perspective, you know, sometimes which was like outright condemnation of all wars, um, kind of kind of where it came from you know, how it gained traction and what happened to it in our time, which I think was to get pushed to the margins. Interesting. Okay, so 
tell us a little bit about then the birth of pacifism. So you're saying that before the 19th century, people thought, you know, war is bad, but it's just part of life. Essentially. Um, but then what gave people the idea that, hey, you know what, let's just, let's trust, just try not doing it. So, I mean, a, a lot of people all along and even today have thought some wars are good. And in the 19th century, there was this other group of people, which you could call, and like in contrast to the humanizers and pacifiers, the intensifiers who actually like thought war was essential for renewing, you know, masculinity and making civilization, you know, great. But there were some all along, like going back centuries who kind of thought war was an, an evil that, you know, you couldn't get rid of because of, you know, various reasons. So, uh, and it, I think it was like poverty and slavery in that regard. You have people complain about those things, but it, it wasn't worth kind of opposing on principle because it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't believed that you could eradicate these things. So it's like bad weather. Yeah. 19th century, you, you get more optimism and, you know, one reason is new interpretations of Christianity, but also I think the French Revolution and the rise of, you know, commerce and certain progressive secular views also kind of, you know, play into this. And the idea is um, we could edit war out. Um, and given that it is evil, not just in, in like its costs for how it's fought, but just having it at all, why not try it? And so, um, you, you get some people mobilizing and in a way they, you know, they failed in, in some kind of absolute sense, there's a war in Ukraine right now, but in, right. in a broader sense, they've, they have had a, 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 a kind of tremendous effect on our assumptions on what statesmen and, and women today kind of say about, um, cross-border conflict. And even, you know, some argue on the fact that we just have fewer international wars since the middle of the 20th century. Well, we can't. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily credit the 19th century reformers with the change in war since the middle of the 20th. Well, I, I think, you know, it was a long-term project that got, okay. that started in the 19th century. And, you know, after World War One, it becomes hugely, you know, popular because that one was just so bad and transatlantic citizens sort of mobilized in unprecedented numbers. And, you know, it takes World War II, ironically, and American hegemony. But in a way, you know, the, the, those old peacemongers kind of like set some things in motion that, mm -hmm. uh, like got institutionalized in the middle of the 20th century. Now we can still argue that the real reason there's no, you know, war across the Atlantic until, you know, Ukraine or you know, a few other events is nuclear weapons took it off the table. But the, the, these, these peacemongers argued that we could, we could restrain states and we could have treaties and international bodies and things that would keep war from happening at least some of the time. And it seems like their plan comes to fruition in the middle of the 20th century, even if there are a lot of other factors in explaining, you know, Pax Americana. I want to, I want to come back to that. Sure. So the, the, 
let's not do it. The pacifism viewpoint are these peacemongers. They say, don't do war. It's bad. Bad things happen. Then there's another approach to war, which is, I don't know, what would you call it? Humanitarianism? Yeah, I call it humanizing war, you know, which I, by which I just mean reducing the suffering in war once it starts for soldiers and civilians. And so what is, what is that viewpoint and who are some of kind of like the signal uh, advocates of it? Where do we see it in history as compared to the, the peacemongers? So I think it's, it's, it's in a sense new, you know, the peace view is old in the sense that there were like prophets and visionaries, like in, you know, in the Bible who dream of like lions lying down with lambs and, you know, they just think it can't happen until the end of days and, and, and modern times changes that and brings it down to earth as like a real possibility. But I don't think there were folks before modern times who said we should reduce the suffering in war if we can. And you start getting that in the middle of the 19th century with the founding of what we now call the International Red Cross. And it really comes from the the response of one man, a Swiss, you know, gentleman named Ali Dunant, um, to like a, a battlefield he ran across in the 1860s. And he was so horrified that he decided to see if he could get states to agree to let like do-gooders like him help soldiers bleeding out on battlefields. And from that first, you know, you know, like uh, treaty that he he imagined and got kind of um, written down in the 1860s, the Red Cross was born. He won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, the first one in 1901. And actually, I I kind of um, am interested in the fact that Barack Obama, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, he like name checked Dunal. Uh, okay. And so from the 1860s to the present, you have this, let's say, com- competing or you know, supplementary goal to not having war, which is make it more humane if you have to have it. And so that's, that's this other impulse. And I'm trying to raise the question of whether it actually is kind of a competing agenda and not just a nice thing to have around if you have to have war. Right. Okay. So Henri Dunal, he's a, I don't know. What does he do for? Is it like a lawyer or a doctor or something? Uh, he is. He's like a businessman. And he actually first um, travels to um, kind of and, and happens across this battlefield in Italy in, uh, to the Battle of Solferino because he's on a mission to find the French emperor, who at that time is Napoleon III, to get permission to run his business in Algeria. Uh, and <laughs> right. so it just happens that he sees this battlefield and he throws himself into the cause of, of trying to make war more humane. So he turns up, he sees this battlefield, there's people bleeding out, yep. you know, uh, their arms off. And he's like, ew, this is, yeah, this is awful. Yeah. It's supposed to be, you know, this martial, uh, virile activity, but actually this is pretty gross. Very gross in a civil. And we get these guys some band aids. Absolutely, and and it you know you might say, well, why not get armies to take care of their own 
soldiers. Uh, it's just that, you know, Dunal thought that if they wouldn't do it, there should be states agreeing to let neutral private actors, citizens like uh-huh. him and eventually his buddies in the Red Cross do that work when armies fail to take care of their own. And so the whole, I mean, one of the key elements of him being able to get this treaty done is that it's neutral, right? He's like, I'm not judging you guys for doing war. I'm not taking sides. I'm just, I'm only against the suffering of the wounded. Yeah. I mean, I talk in the book about this. He, in the 1860s, he, he's not a pacifist. He's not, you know, he's against war in the same way you or I might oppose some war or other, but he's not joining the anti-war cause. He accepts the inevitability maybe of war and says, well, if it happens, then we ought to make it less brutal for all concerned. Now, when he wins the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the organizers of of the of kind of the peace movement gets really upset because she says this prize wasn't for humanizing. It was for pacifying. And so she seeks him out and makes him announce that he's for peace, too. But, you know, for many in the anti-war camp, th- this humanizing project is kind of threatening because you know, it seems like it concedes the inevitability of war, which they want to challenge. And maybe it does. I like, like, I like that. That's a sort of earlier, um, clash of these two viewpoints. So we have the people who are saying, oh, you know, we just need to not have war. And most people I think today are against war. I don't know many people who are arguing for the martial, you know, the renewal of the spirit that, uh, martial activity gives, but most people also think, hey, the Red Cross is great. We should humanize war. It should, there shouldn't be that much suffering. But you're saying at this early point, the first Nobel Peace Prize, the Red Cross, which is, you know, a lot of people like that organization. Uh, people are like, no, all they're doing is almost PR for war. They're just like making it, making it easier to do. This is supposed to be a, about peace and humanizing war is not at all the same as arguing for peace. Exactly. And, you know, one reason I start with the 19th and early 20th centuries is that there was a much more open debate about this because first there was a bigger peace movement. And then in part for that reason, there was a lot more skepticism about the project of merely making war humane. Now, I don't want to take things too far. There were a lot of people who said, of course, we aim for peace, but if we don't get it, we you know, still think making it what results humane is, is worth striving for. Now that's actually my view too, but it's just interesting that some of the earliest, um, advocates of peace, uh, and I do a lot with this, you know, Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy in this regard, um, kind of raise these concerns about the humanizing project. You know, it's not that it wasn't a good thing, but what if there were kind of, kind of unanticipated risks or unintended consequences that went along with that? And I think they were right in those kind of qualms about the humanizing project. Great. So let's then outline a couple of other positions. There's Tolstoy who, you know, as you outline, he becomes very extreme. He's a absolute pacifist. So he thinks that any humanization of war, you're just 
making war okay, what we need to do is abolish the thing. In the same way, he takes uh, he takes a similar attitude towards slavery, right? Like all these regulations for making slavery more humane. He says, no, just get rid of it. It's wrong. Then you have the humanizing aspects. Like we, it's inevitable. We're going to have war. Let's humanize it. Then there's another position that we haven't mentioned that you mentioned in the books where you have Clausewitz talking about it and, um, you know, some American Air Force guys talking about, hey, if you, if you want wars to be short, don't worry about making them humane. You can make them as brutal as you want because the more brutal, the more killing you have in a shorter time, the more humane it is going to be in the long run because that's how to make peace is to do maximum brutality in a short period of time. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I would put it slightly differently. It's right that there was that other camp. I, I mentioned it before when I said there were people who actually wanted to like lean into war and intensify it. Uh, now, almost no one in that camp was, was really wanting not to have war. Um, actually, they loved war, but... They, they would say as like part of their PR that actually, if you care about cruelty and peace, you should want no holds barred war uh-huh. um, because there would be a fringe benefit in allowing intense war that it would break out less frequently or it would, you know, last shorter, a shorter amount of time when it came. So Clausewitz says this. Tolstoy, when he writes War and Peace, he isn't yet a Christian pacifist. He puts in the mouth of one of his characters the position that he would leave war brutal so that we know what we're doing when we embark on it, and therefore we would fight it less frequently. Um, And an American who actually writes the first national code for an army in modern times named Francis Lieber, he says that if we have brutal, intense war, it will be short. So the, all of those folks loved war and they weren't trying to get rid of it, but they would kind of like, you know, say, well, if you're a pacifist, you should still side with me. Or if you're a human humanitarian, you should still side with me because, you know, not only are my wars great, but they're, they lead to in enduring peace and they're less cruel in the long run even if they're cruel in the short run is there is there any reason to believe them i don't think so but i i i think what's happened is that that position of loving war has just gone underground uh and a lot of people you know harbor that view it's kind of amazing you said that you don't know anyone who just embraces war but if that's true, it's kind of bizarre that we have so, so many wars that, you know, for which they're such a flimsy basis. Uh, it seems like George W. Bush liked war and some of the neocons who gave him the idea of invading Iraq. Uh, you know, I think Vladimir, that, yeah. What, what's he doing? So there, you know, there are, if you, if you start out with the view that, well, a lot of wars don't need to happen, but happen anyway, well, someone wanted them. And maybe right. I, I, I guess what I mean is I don't hear them. people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you said, it's underground. People are not out, um, making the case, but yeah, clearly it's doing something for someone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some people say, well, look what happened in the 20th century is that rhetoric changed and all wars became defensive. 
Um, and maybe that's true. Um, I think there are fewer wars, but it's also true that the, the way statesmen talk about them is in terms of defensive war rather than saying openly. Right. There's no more, there. there's no more departments of war. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about the 19th century and how world war one was so bad that that brought back some pacifism. Uh, another one of the big watershed moments in your story is world war two, particularly the Nuremberg trials and what happened after it. So how does that work as a node for the story about pacifism and humanizing war? Well, just to go back, I, I, we talked about the 19th century peace movement, which basically yeah. was about transatlantic peace. And, you know, that meant really what you could call a, a, a Christian white peace. Uh -huh. it, and, so it, out in the colonies, you can still go banana. Absolutely. And, and it was the age of empires, obviously, where these ideas gained traction. And mm -hmm. so what, what a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people want is an end to in, inter-imperial wars. Um, and in a sense, they get it at the end of World War II. Uh, a transatlantic peace, you know, basically is, it, it is created and remains under American auspices. What I think changes then in real terms is that while America had fought a lot of wars in uh, the Western Hemisphere and in on its own territory and in the Philippines at the beginning of the 20th century, in and through World War II, it becomes the global hegemon and European empires start disappearing and America starts fighting a lot of wars, a lot of places in the name of the transatlantic, you know, free, free world. And those wars, like the old imperial wars around the world, remain brutal. You know, the end of World War II in the Pacific, Korea, Vietnam. What I think is significant about the end of World War II, then, is not that war becomes more humane. It's, it's really two other things. One is that America takes charge definitively through today. The other is that there was an agreement that at least, you know, for lip service purposes, that what, what was worst about war was having it, not that it was fought brutally. And so the United Nations Charter of 1945, I mean, the world's still only 50 states then, but they say war is off the table unless it's defensive or the UN yep. sanctions it. And at Nuremberg, starting the same year as the UN Charter and going into the next one, 1945-6, they say the worst crime is starting an aggressive war. Mm -hmm. And there are so many good reasons for, for making that the, the, the kind of main concern. Let me just mention them. First, if you start an illegal war, you're much more likely to, you know, commit war crimes in the course of that war. But then so much becomes legal once you're at war, killing soldiers in any number, which is not a war crime, killing civilians in large numbers, which only becomes, you know, a war crime later. And even today, killing civilians is legal up to a point. All the money that's spent on, on war, especially misbegotten wars and could have been spent on something else, all the destabilization that's caused. I mean, in our time, the war on terror 
in places like the Iraq theater or take the case of Libya uh, after 2011. You know, more people died not because Americans and their allies shot at them, but because the places were destabilized and there was just enormous violence that ensued. And all of that is the result of, you know, wars not worth having, but they weren't war crimes. Um, there weren't war crimes, but only a small percentage of the death. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think people used to say, let's just like the most important thing is not to have wars unless it's absolutely necessary, not to prettify them, not to humanize right. them. So war as a whole just has inevitably a ton of terrible consequences. Correct. And the war crimes are just kind of like the ones that make the best headlines. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's right. And, and. You know, we can go back and say, oh, no, Nuremberg, it omitted the Holocaust, which is true by and large. And that's a shame. But it included a lot of concerns that, in a sense, we lost after the 1960s and 70s and kind of um, changing our priorities and focusing on how war is fought and especially on atrocities and not having them or punishing them after the fact. So that. That's interesting. So I want to bring that up because, as you know, a, a elementary and high school student, when you're learning about the Second World War and why it's so bad, of course, you just get the idea that war is bad. But there's also a lot of focus on the Holocaust and atrocities, right? Those, you know, like I said, they make the best headlines. And they're also how, at least in my Canadian public education, it was explained to me why war is so bad. And so I, you know, the, one of the general positions is just believing that this view arose in response to World War II and the Holocaust. But you're telling me that actually that wasn't the mainstream view in the fifties at the, at the end of the second world war in the forties, it was that actually just war is bad. Correct. It's not just the atrocities. Correct. I mean, now, it took a war to stop Adolf Hitler, so it's not like everyone converted to pacifism, but especially in a right. nuclear environment, um, people had learned from the world wars that that war is hell, and it's hell not just for the, the civilians who are killed illegally, but for all of these multifarious consequences. And so... You can go back and it is amazing how little attention there is to the death of the Jews in World War II, not just at the time, but in the years after at, at marquee events like Nuremberg. And, and in part, that's because of just a lapse that people didn't know or didn't care about what we now think was the worst thing that went down in that period um, alongside Hiroshima and Tough Nagasaki, which people knew about, but it, it was more that like they, they had a sense that, well, the, the, those in power across the transatlantic, they had lost, you know, sons, brothers, husbands in the millions, tens of millions, not once, but twice. And their states had kind of lost their global hegemony, you know, as a result of these world wars, Europe had to kind of seek shelter under America's wing against the threat of communism. So 
I think people back then sort of thought the worst thing that happened was that we had these world wars, not just the atrocities that took place in the course of them. Therefore, looking forward, we organize ourselves to kind of, you know, start with not having wars unless it's absolutely necessary and not merely care about the innocent who died in them. Right. So World War II, total catastrophe. Going forward, let's not have any wars, at least not between empires, not transatlantic wars, but we'll continue to have this form of brutal warfare sort of in the periphery. Um, and then, And then at some point, this changes and we start to have a more like humane view of war. When, when does this start changing? I think it's really the 60s and 70s for a few different reasons. One is decolonization. So the number of states quadruples and the, the, the subjects of the most brutal war, the victims, you know, now have states of their own. Yeah. And they, they, they can get rowdy and they can try to change kind of international affairs themselves. And one thing they do is say, could we actually have a, a law that makes war humane? Because clearly it hadn't happened so far, especially for global war. But then the West European second have given up empire over those same people. And so they can you know, pose as moral. <laughs> and there are all these like middle and lesser powers where you have many more people than before in a new world, a new decolonized world who, you know, don't want to have the, the race, racialized world order of the past. And, and they want to take the moral high ground. And then finally, Americans are shamed by Vietnam briefly. And even in the military, they, there is, me lie the you know massacre revealed in 1970 has been such a a public relations disaster that the military says we can't fight the way we did in the pacific in world war ii or right. korea or vietnam where it was just assumed that asian life was cheap i mean you find people just saying that in the same way that native american life had been cheap or filipino life had been cheap in prior American wars. So, you know, there, there's, I think ultimately the big explanation is that like there's a cultural transformation. So to recap a little bit, you have World War II and then all the Western powers say no more war, no more war with each other, but obviously we still have empires, so we have to use brutal violence to rule them. But then you get decolonization and all the victims of colonialism kind of say, a uh, new rule, how about we stop with the atrocities and massacres and brutal war? And European powers, since they no longer have colonies to dominate, they're like, of course, let's stop that. We would never want to do something like that. Um, is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's so much easier to take the moral high ground after centuries when you, you didn't. Uh, and you know, the, the people who were once ruling the world and treating it, you know, it very violently, uh -huh. you know, become some of the big backers of more humanity and warfare. Even when, you know, it's Americans are fighting it to protect, you know, the European peace. 
which is ironic. So now that the former colonial states, they want more humanity and more, the European powers, they want more humanity and more, and America is kind of the odd man out because they're still out there maintaining Western supremacy, trying to, you know, protect the world from communism and stuff like that. And they're still waging brutal wars on the periphery in places like Vietnam, for example. Uh, so is is that just it? It's that America kind of steps up to rule the world and they're doing the same kind of thing Europeans were doing in imperial wars? Or is it different? What's the what's the distinction there? Is is it the same thing or or what? Yeah, I mean, a lot of and weaponry and, you know, the Europeans don't have napalm uh, when they're, huh. you know, fighting in in Malaya or wherever. So the, a lot changes and, you know, the death toll in a, in a sense becomes worse um, in part because the weaponry involved. I mean, four to six million die in the Vietnamese. Uh, Astonishing. War. It's amazing how uh, yeah, and you, you, you don't you don't really get death totals of that kind in in you know, imperial war. Um, but it's, it's in a sense, the, the, the pattern is established in imperial war where, you know, so-called savage peoples are treated mercilessly. Uh, and of course, aerial bombardment, which, you know, continues through Vietnam and it, it is, is really, you know, invented by, um, imperial states of Europe for, for, to kind of pacify subject peoples. And there are no limits in the law. Uh, and of course you see that in Europe in World War II, but especially in, yeah. in the end of the Pacific War. Uh, and, okay, I was going to say in World War II, the Europeans famously early bombed each other. Correct. <laughs> it, wasn't, correct. it wasn't strictly reserved for correct. colonized peoples. Correct. So... With this backlash against My Lai and the atrocities in Vietnam, this is when even America starts to get the idea that maybe they want to move towards a more humane form of war to cool it with the atrocities and stuff, right? And I guess the next moment I, I would want to go to is the first time I remember in my own personal memory that I heard this kind of thing was the first Gulf War. And that's when I started hearing about surgical strikes and precision warfare. The idea seemed to be that this was going to be a clean war. There wasn't going to be big disasters and atrocities. Uh, the damage was going to be minimized. So was this a big moment in the shift towards humane warfare? The first Gulf War is great because, you know, we haven't talked about these new groups, human rights groups that emerge on the ruins of the anti-war movement but commit never to taking sides in a war, kind of like the Red Cross, only to monitoring whether they're brutal. And yeah, the, the Human Rights Watch, the lead such organization, um, monitors its first war in history when it comes to the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. That's also the war, which is the first one in which U.S. military lawyers help pick targets to make sure that the air campaign is not as brutal as prior American wars. So it's, it is a pivotal moment right after the Cold War when there's like a new consensus among reformers and within the state to push war in a new direction. 
Nice. And then, well, but it really comes to fruition, according to your book, yeah. with the war on terror, yeah. right? So as I understand it, there's 9-11, then Bush comes in and says, you know what? Forget humanity. These are unlawful combatants. We're going to do, we're going to do whatever we want. Guantanamo Bay, torture, whatever. And then there's a backlash against that, right? Um, so what happens, what happens there? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people's, you know, enduring view of the war on terror is that it's brutal and illegal. And of course, I'm not going to say that it wasn't, but to me, the, the essential thing was how briefly George W. Bush and his servants kind of make that move of trying to return to before humane war, because by the end of Bush's two terms in office, he's returned to the pale uh, without ending the war on terror. And then Barack Obama comes into office and says, far from ending the war on terror, I'm going to reinvent it. My war on terror is going to be torture free. Uh, I'm going to take care when I transform the war with drones and special forces that they be deployed consistently with the Geneva Conventions and with applicable constraints. So it's, it's like a reversal, not just from Nuremberg, but from the moment after me lie, because atrocity, you know, could remind us why we're, we shouldn't have war. And the fact that there was a big anti-war movement when Milai was revealed um, kind of threw fuel onto the fire and ended the Vietnam War. But the reverse happened after Abu Ghraib was revealed in 2004. The war on terror continued with the bug in the program of torture and inhumanity removed and permanent war remains. Like, I, I think this contrast is so interesting in the book between, you know, for, throughout history, the pacifists has been, have been using atrocities as a reason to say, look, this is why war is so bad. And then you have Abu Ghraib and all these torture photos and Obama and, you know, a lot of Americans are like, you know, uh, war is good. Could we just do it without this? Could we just have like the sugar-free version? Maybe. Yeah. Um, and, and why do you think... Why do you think that is? Why this time it was different? Well, I think it's a complex moment. So you're absolutely right. And it's essential to say that there's a large number of people who were offended by the conduct of the war on terror, but not the thing itself. And they, they like a permissive environment for at least their great power. Then they get angry when Putin uh, breaks the same rules. Um, but I, I, I think it's only fair to, to say that there, there was a coalition around torture and, and, and other infractions, because I think, you know, some people just had been trained morally to think that torture was this unique evil. And it was noble of them to say that has horrified us, not the war, not all the bad things, you know, involved in war in general, but this particular thing. Um, and then there were maybe the most interesting kind of part of the coalition. It's, it's those people who think that the best way to undermine the war is by making hay of war crimes. That kind of worked after me line. So why not try it again after Abu Ghraib? But 
I think what we learn is that that group made a bet that kind of didn't pay off because they had the reverse effect. They kind of helped the state eliminate the stigma around uh-huh. the war and it ended up going on rather than stopping. So could you, could you then describe, um, so the, the hinge in the story is that Obama says, oh, you know what? You're right. Atrocities are bad. Let's humanize it. So what does humane war look like? You mentioned, so it's, it's drones from on high. There's secret strikes by special forces, but no boots on the ground, very few civilian casualties, no atrocity. Is that? Well, I, ideally, I mean, I would never say war can be humane or that American war is humane now, but it's more humane than its historical forms. Like if you compare Vietnam and the war on terror in terms of combatant and civilian death. Uh, but more important is that actors like reformers outside the state, Human Rights Watch, and actors within the state, within the military, are applying these constraining laws. Um, and that there is an effect. I mean, certainly there's rhetoric. So you look at Obama's main two speeches around the war on terror. First, the uh, still utterly amazing Nobel Peace Prize address in late 2009, and then his drones address once they became known in 2013. And in both cases, he says, you elected me. I can't give up war. I never said I would. Um, but I, I will be different than Bush was. And I'm going to put a stop to the inhumanity and the illegality and the conduct of the war on terror. And it's in that, you know, context that he cites all they do know, the founder of the Red Cross, and, you know, the person who convened states to make the first Geneva Convention. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's kind of fascinating that Obama understood after Abu Ghraib that one way to legitimate wars is to say, well, at least it's not brutal anymore. So great, because a lot of people I think would say, well, isn't that, isn't that fabulous for Obama? You know, isn't he, isn't it, isn't it so great that he is taking responsibility for this foul conduct of war and ending atrocities? Yeah. But in your book, he's kind of the villain. So can you tell me why this move was so, uh, maybe it ended up being nefarious? Well, I, at first I try, I'm ambivalent about Obama. I mean, I do think, of course, if the choice is between brutal and humane war, we choose the latter. And to the extent he understood, you know, the moral principle that should lead us to do so, then I celebrate the man. And Again, it's, it's, you know, whatever your view, it's just amazing that he placed this concern at the center of his presidential rhetoric. If I, if I get tough on him, it's because I think that he could have gone further. He could have stopped the war on terror, especially after the, you know, the capture and, and, and killing of Osama bin Laden. 
And there were a lot of other wars that he initiated, most notably the Libyan regime change. And so, you know, my, my bigger concern is that Obama, far from stopping, intensified this dynamic of America pushing the boundaries of permission to go to war when it wants. And then you get this compensation of promises to do it humanely, uh, to, to make the fight humane. And I just think as, as Americans or citizens of the world, we look out and we should not rest content with politicians who, you know, embrace and affect the right to go to war when they please and promise us in compensation that the results will be less brutal than before. And so a lot of this kind of then turns on, you know, well, which wars actually made the world a better place? Were defensible, were worth fighting. And I can't come up with a list that has, you know, any American war since World War II on it. And so the fact that America has made those wars more humane, it's not nothing, but it's not enough either. Right. So, okay. It's one thing to say, yes, it's not enough. He could have gone, he could have gone further, but I, I thought that at least a lot of the controversy surrounding the book and a lot of the discussion is that it sounds like you're saying that the humanity of, of, of war, the new like sanitization of war has actually made it easier for America to like do more, fight more wars, fight them for longer, fight them over unbounded territory. Yeah. So what I'm reading when I read it is that it's, it's that the limitations on the conduct of war yeah. have served as a pretext or at least an excuse for yeah. the massive expansion yeah. of the scope of war over time and space. Uh, is that, it's, is that that's accurate, but let me, let me just, you know, let me make that argument, you know, in a way that disarms some obvious, you know, responses because, you know, I, I want to make the argument carefully. First, it's just the case that whenever we make something less objectionable to some people, we make it more tolerable to them. Mm -hmm. And Obama would never have placed the alleged hum humanity of ongoing war central to the, his major speeches on foreign policy. If, if it didn't matter to someone, it wasn't just him saying it was morally the right thing to do, although that may have been true. He's a politician. And I think it mattered to a lot of people. And we know that because the biggest debates to this day around American war in the past quarter century are around its brutality, not its existence. The Abu Ghraib debate, the the, you know, the critical journalism around drone strikes, which complain about, you know, excess civilian death. So that's one set of arguments. And, you know, if you look at death penalty activists, they embrace the idea that there's a risk when you, um, even if you hate the death penalty, if you decide to struggle against the cruelty of how it's administered, you're taking a risk that it'll be harder to end after because it, it'll have been made, you know, less offensive, at least to some number of people. Now, that's the main argument. And then I'll just add that I'm not saying it's 
that the humanization of American war is the only, let alone the primary reason these wars continue. Of course, it's nowhere near the top of the list. But what I think is important is that it's a new thing in the world that uh, we have the possibility and, and the attempt to, to make war less offensively brutal. And I just don't see that happening before the last few decades. And uh-huh. that's why I wanted to, in a sense, give it some attention so that it's not, it's, it's on the list. And we think critically about, you know, how much of our time and energy we put into, you know, making violence more palatable. Great. I love that because this is a, you know, since it's new, it kind of points forward conceptually in a new world. And as a theory guy, I like to speculate a bit. Yeah. So, um, we imagine in your book, you imagine, okay, what if there is the technology gets so good that you can have almost completely humane war. You might even have war without killing. And you talk a lot about how looking into the idea of humane war has made it apparent to you that atrocity is not the essential evil of war. It's something else. So a lot of people would say, look, if we purge war of violence and atrocity, that's fabulous. Um, you think that doesn't get to the core evil of war, which is, which is what? Well, domination and subjugation. I mean, I'll just use it, an analogy, uh, you know, in my country, there was this horrendous example of police brutality when George Floyd was killed. Uh, and you know, we're, we're still, we haven't kind of yet processed that event, which has caused so much upheaval. Um, but you could imagine two reform projects in response. One is to make policing less brutal and, or even violent. Um, Another is to have less policing because, you know, the, the most, you know, troubling fact about uh, American policing is that it's not universal. It's, it's principally a way in which one group of people rules over another group of people on the basis of race. Uh, and that's why policing is intense in some places and not others. And to me, it would be chilling to preserve that relationship, but to edit the violence out. And I'm just wondering if the rise of more humane war is in a sense, a global version of the same trend. And I close the book, you know, not just, um, reminding people about, you know, how, how chilling it would be to have, um, you know, endless global policing, even if civilian death was edited out, but imagining that we work on the protection of combatants too, because a lot of humanitarians want to make war safer for combatants. Um, and if they get their way without ever focusing on the larger kind of relationships, um, because some countries police others and the reverse isn't true, then I think we'll have made a mistake. So the problem with American humane war, if it, even if it's like, if we get to a point where it's not violent, is it still like America acting as a 
undemocratic police force for everyone in the world. Essentially. And, and, you know, it's not reciprocal so that right people in, in, you know, Yemen don't police Americans, uh, don't have any way of, uh, uh, don't have any way of objecting or let alone pushing back if they decide that, well, they didn't choose to have drones striking, uh, their country. Uh, now, you know, may, maybe you say, well, we need a, a, a fairer global policing system. And I'm not going to deny that there aren't threats. But of course, you know, the fact is that for centuries and now, most people die um, in, in uses of force that, you know, work over long distances, including, you know, terrorist organizations when great powers strike back. And so like, you know, terrorists killed a lot of people in Manhattan on September 11, 2001. But how many globally have died in the response to those events? you know, tens and hundreds of times more. And so, you know, let's, I'm for a peaceful world. And, you know, it, it seems as if we, we want to have, um, some system that's not just reflecting that the powerful get to protect some themselves and the weak who are not innocent always, uh, suffer the consequences. Right. So one, I mean, there's a suffering, the consequences and the uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying, millions. Um, but looking even more speculatively towards this idea of like a humane world police force, right? And that how, how that might still be a problem Yeah, is, okay, so if the wrong of war is domination, I think it's very dramatic in your book, you write about, well, what is it like to, you know, live under drones, even if you're not being hit by them? If they're perfectly targeting only the bad guys, yeah. uh, just the fact that you're living under this police force from America in the sky that could blow anyone you know up at any, any time is a shitty way to live. And that is kind of the evil of domination, that you're being controlled, your actions are being constrained by someone by someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and so, I'd say what's, what's the wrong in the, you know, the, the policing of undesirable urban populations, you know, from, you know, for when suburbs aren't policed the same way, well, it's the same. I mean, I, it's, it's unfair, uh, hierarchy. Well, right. And it's not reciprocal. Yeah. I mean, the people in Yemen cannot police the people in the United States. They have no say in this policing, but what I'm, trying to move towards is if the evil of of war is domination and that's this kind of undemocratic exercise of power there's lots of ways to do domination yeah right absolutely. so if what are the other there's we mentioned policing but even internationally what are the other ways that the power powerful uh actors dominate the less powerful well it, it you know th this book is in a sense narrow and obtuse because it's just about the organization of that form of violence we call war. And yet, of course, the, the main way that global hierarchy is, is institutionalized and preserved is through nonviolent means like right. economics. Um, or, you know, if we are looking beyond just the kind of direct interventionist war, 
that I write about, you know, the arms trade or proxy wars uh, would have to be taken into consideration. So, um, you know, the important thing to note is that one reason why, uh, as we discussed, people became more permissive towards wars is that they understood that there was domination within states. Um, and, you know, rulers are not good people, but, you know, by and large in world history, and uh -huh. they have had the ability to harm and even kill their populations with impunity. And of course, that's not, that's not good. And it's an intolerable form of domination. It's just that our answer to it has been to kind of ratify and intensify the domination that exists among states and mm -hmm. allowing, you know, powerful states to do what they want and the rest to live with the consequences. And again, Ukraine is a great example because uh, amazingly, the day before he invaded, Putin gives this irate rant when he says, look, you know, the West has fought all these illegal wars. The trouble is not that they're brutal, it's that they happened. And of course, then he goes on to, you know, add insult to injury as if two wrongs could make a right. Um, but it's just true that we're living in this permissive environment where states, if they're powerful, can fight wars if they think they can get away with, you know, fighting. Um, and so, that's true whether they're made more humane or not. I wonder... If, if you are taking like an anti-war position and the basis, then I ask you what's wrong with war, you say domination, um, not so much atrocity. I am fully with this. I like this. I like the idea of freedom. Um, but how is this for a reason to focus on atrocity, which is that because as we've established, domination happens in many different ways and especially within states, with rulers vis-a-vis -vis the ruled, um, doesn't fighting domination become even more of a potential pretext for making more war than fighting human rights atrocities? Um, like, it could. I mean, of course that's true. I mean, I, so, it, you know, it's, it's really important to kind of go back and see that the reason why people have been concerned about atrocity is that it's one, you know, disgusting form of domination, which people oppose. And of course, you could say, well, it's, it's the trouble is that it ended up, you know, perpetuating or even creating more domination, especially in the relation of powerful to weak states. Um, and it, as you suggest, I'm, it, 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 even if we agree to think in these terms, you could fight wars against domination protectually. And, you know, in some alternative universe, Putin could be saying not that he's trying to stop a genocide, but he's trying to emancipate yeah. you know, people. And then, then we're, we're, we're not in a, a, yeah, I'm not proposing that we have some easy exit from a world of, in which politicians lie. Yeah. But I am suggesting that if we don't work within the domination framework, we, we will miss how 
the concern about atrocity, which can be understood as a concern about domination, fits together with, you know, a, a credible view about how you reduce domination overall. And there it just doesn't make sense to me that we would want to accept a world in which there's a lot more war uh, in the name of having a little less brutality in the course of it. But right. that's not utopia. It's, yeah, you're it's, saying do a big atrocity so we can get rid of domination. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that was one atrocity to end know, it all. Yeah. That was that old view, and 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 it's just that it doesn't seem empirically very credible to me that it were, would work. But if it if you could prove, uh, yeah, that it would, then we'd have to have a different conversation. As far as I can Let me tell, ask you, what do you what do you think is you know pick one. You can get rid of atrocity or you can get rid of domination. Right. Like, do you, do you, do you, uh, die on your feet or live in your knees? Because sure. If you, if you ask me, I don't know. It depends on the day, to be honest. Well, I'm assuming you mean that, that if you got rid of domination, it would, it might require violence to do so. Um, but because otherwise I don't see that there are games in conflict because it just seems that atrocity is one form of domination among okay. others because there's nonviolent domination. That's the principal form of domination right. in the world, nonviolent domination. And so presumably, you know, it's, you could, you could oppose both consistently. Um, the hard thing becomes if you have to, you know, just begin trading off. Um, you know, and say, oh, no, we have to incur one form of domination atrocity in order to advance, you know, non-domination generally. And you probably would, but, it, it, you know, I, I'm not going to go so far as to argue for that. I do think that in, in, as far as I can tell from history, having fewer wars yeah. in general is best for freedom. And it's not a perfect picture in which freedom wins comprehensively and finally. All we know is that having as many wars as we've had lately has increased rather than decreased domination. Good. I like that. I think that's actually a pretty good place to, to start to wrap up. So I just want to thank you for being on. It's been a really interesting talk. And um, do you have... Anything, anything else to add? Maybe for, for the people who still think, gosh, Sam Moyne hates human rights. Oh, well, so I, I, I don't hate human rights or humanizing war. I just think that, you know, this book, which is mainly storytelling about various wars and people, you know, trying to engage in some kind of in attempt to make the world a better place. I, I just want to raise a question about the humanizing uh, because of the risks I think we've seen are, are, are possible um, that come along with it. And then, you know, my own answer, well, if you accept that, that there are these risks is not to drop the project. I think we should have more humane war and more constraining rules about how wars are fought. But We'd also just don't control or manage yeah. the risk that comes along. And don't forget that, you know, it'd be better not to have the war if it wasn't worth having than just concern oneself with 
its conduct. So more anti-war movements to go alongside our humanizing human rights. Any ideas on how to make peace cool again? Uh, well, I think we need a 1960s where, you know, all the songs were about it and, you know, culture became a, 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 it became imperative in culture and like on, on, you know, the old equivalents of cell phones and TikTok and all that to advance peace. And I actually think there are signs that that's, that's coming, uh, uh, and uh, the question is how far it can go and at what time. Great. Well, I like that note of optimism and yeah, I hope it's soon. Okay. Appreciate so, it. So yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it.